is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. I, of course, am your host, David Dole, and coming up on today's show, what Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony tells us about who this Trudeau government answers to. Also, Doug Ford holds a fundraiser for the rich. What does that tell us about who this PC government is fighting for? And later on in the show, Bernie 2020, how the 77-year-old independent senator is breaking records while the mass media continues to downplay his chances. All that and more coming up on The David Dole Show. But first, this week, federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh won his by-election in Burnaby South, finally giving him a seat in the House of Commons. Joining me by phone to discuss this is Christo Avalis, a postdoctoral fellow in the History Department at the University of Toronto with writing credits in Maclean's, The Globe and Mail, and The Washington Post. He also has a new YouTube channel that I'll get him to uh, plug before the break, and he works closely with the NDP in Kingston. Christo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, um, Jugmeet Singh now finally has a seat in the, uh, in the House of Commons. So, what... Is this, uh, I guess, the result that you expected, or um, yeah? What, what are your thoughts on on his uh, his win there? Yeah, I mean, I was always pretty confident that he would win the seat. You know, there was some early polling that had it as a kind of close three way race between the Liberals, Conservatives, and NDP. But you know, around the time that the first Liberal candidate sort of had to resign due to uh, you know a kind of racism scandal, yeah. the polling at that point indicated the NDP at about thirty nine percent. And so I figured that with that scandal, in addition to that healthy lead, Singh should be fine. And, you know, the polls more or less did kind of peg Singh's vote. Um, and he did well out of the three major parties. He was the only one to increase the, uh, his, the, the riding share of votes uh, vis-a-vis 2015. Mm-hmm. And so it was, a, it was a quite a strong result. So if, if it is a surprise, it's the fact that it wasn't close. Many people, I think, were predicting a Singh win but a bit of nail-biting. But um, it, was, it was pretty healthy. Yeah, so uh, he'll be taking over, uh, I guess the the role that that Guy Caron uh, filled for him while he was uh, while he was waiting for his seat uh, as parliamentary leader. Well, what do you expect, uh, or how do you expect the mood to shift w- within Parliament uh, now that Jagmeet Singh has his seat? Well, I think it will be a little. There'll be a few more eyes on the NDP's approach. Um, in in addition to the fact that you know we're so close to the election, we really only have a little bit of time. In the House to sit before that election, it'll it'll be uh, very clear that you know this is Sheer and Singh's last attempt to really try to demonstrate their value in the House. Um, you're going to see a budget come very soon, and so in addition to that, you're going to see some high stakes debates on the budget, which you know generally for a government that's about to go into an election, the budget they propose right before it. Um, is basically their, 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 the start of their campaign. That's what you saw, for instance, from the Ontario Liberals in 2018. They didn't really release um, a, a campaign budget so much because they were running on the budget they proposed the spring before the election. Mm-hmm. So I think you add all of those things, um, you're going to see um, a lot more interest. And I think Singh has indicated in his speech that you know he's still going to kind of be a happy warrior but in his victory speech, he really did try to hone in on the fact that, you know, Canada in some ways is a rigged game. 
Mm-hmm. Talking about SNC Lavalin, but just in general, how the rich and how the conservatives and liberals have all kind of united to 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 make it a little bit easier for some of the wealthy and to make it a lot harder for working people, and that he's angry about that, and Canadians are angry about that, and he wants to challenge it. And if that's his tone in Parliament, you could see maybe a bit of summoning from maybe a little bit of summoning from Angry Tom in 2015, you know, before the election, and that could be interesting to see as well. So are there any uh, specific proposals that you think uh, Jagmeet Singh will be focused on in terms of uh, his platform going into uh, the election in the fall? Yeah, I think there's going to be a couple. One, there's two, there's two big policy platforms that he's talked about in his by-election. The first, and this is very important because, you know, B.C. and, and, and urban areas like Toronto, uh, you know, southern B.C., southern Ontario, are going to be key areas for Singh. And those are areas where housing is a big issue, housing affordability, housing availability. Singh has talked about, you know, a mixture of policies, a mixture of public house building, a mixture of subsidies. Uh, Singh does want to kind of to do, have a direct role for the government in the construction of units. He says we need to kind of go back to some of the things we did in the 40s and the 70s and build housing for Canadians. And I think that that's a policy that will play well in some key, you know, seat-rich areas of this country. Uh, he's also talked a lot about pharmacare. Now, the Liberals are using a policy about pharmacare, but I think we're pretty clear on the fact that it won't be a universal system. Yeah. It'll be something akin to OHIP Plus, but it may be even less ambitious, perhaps. But Singh has been clear in arguing for you know, a universal system, uh, and he's had you know positive research done. Yeah, research that's come out of UBC, for instance, has said, yeah, the, the sticker price up front is, is not nothing, but over the medium and long term, a universal pharmacare system will save Canada money and will save in both in terms of, you know, the raw cost of medicine, which will go down, but also in lowering the kind of, you know, more expensive costs you get when people get hospitalized when they can't get the medicines they need. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing you'll see come up, and this is in his platform when he ran for leader um, and, you know, he had a successful leadership campaign, but I think has become reemphasized in our debate thanks to Ocasio-Cortez and Sanders and Warren. Um, is tax reform. And I think Singh, you know, isn't so much pushing uh, a super high top marginal income rate, although he would be increasing that. Singh is, I think, looking at both um, raising capital gains inclusion from about 75% to 50, or from 50 to 75%, meaning that, you know, um, those who earn their income primarily on capital gains, who are generally wealthier people, mm-hmm. will pay more in taxes. And I think more substantive. Um, is the creation of an estate tax in Canada, which we don't have. We don't have an inheritance tax or an estate tax. Mm. And he would add one on all estates worth more than $4 million. So in a sense, um, Singh has those proposals in his back pocket. And in an era now where uh, you know taxing the rich has become popular again, and research from Frank Graves at ECOS has demonstrated very, very strong support for higher taxes on the rich. I think in the case of the wealth tax, it was 69%. Of Canadians, it was a super majority mm, yeah, of Canadians right. supported it. So Singh has those policies, and while Trudeau did, you know, have a minor increase on the rich in 2015, he did have that small upper class tax hike. Uh, Trudeau and the Liberals and Sheer and the Conservatives would never go after wealth taxation because that's just too fundamentally close to the interests of their party. Yeah.
And as you uh, said before as well, it's, it's also about embracing the rhetoric, uh, the rhetoric around that. So embracing class conflict and not being afraid yeah. to actually, you know, challenge the wealthy. Um, but uh, yeah. I want to move to, so the media sort of sounding the alarm around uh, a number of MPs, uh, NDP MPs leaving or are not, are not seeking re-election. So I believe there's about 13 NDP MPs not seeking or uh, not going into the fall. And that includes Nathan Cullen and Murray Rankin, who are you know, well-respected NDP MPs. What are your uh, thoughts on that? Is this a, a, a bad sign for the NDP? I mean, you, you know, you never want to lose, you know, key people. I mean, that's the reality, right? You, these people have expertise. They have knowledge. They have experience. So you don't want to lose those people. So you can't really spin it as, well, this is actually a good thing. Although I will say that a good chunk of these people retiring are people who you might expect to be retiring. Um, you know, D David Christofferson in Hamilton, who's being replaced by a new and exciting candidate like Matthew Green. Mm. Um, he's a, he's a, you know, a, a gentleman, and he's in his 60s. Linda Duncan is in her 70s. You have some of these people that are in their 60s uh, or will be in their 70s uh, by the end of, say, the 2023 term if we have another majority government. So there's a lot of these MPs that are quite older, and even Nathan Cullen. Nathan Cullen supported Jagmeet Singh. He endorsed him. This isn't about a conflict with Jagmeet, mm -hmm. but it is about how he's got a young family, and being where, he fr where he's from in northwest B.C., he has perhaps the longest commute to Parliament. So when you start mm -hmm. going down the list of people, for a, I'd say at least three quarters of them, there's a plausible reason why they're leaving other than the fact that, you know, the, the election's not looking good. I do think it opens up a bit of an opportunity. You're seeing some people running again from 2015, people like Andrew Cass, who's going to probably run again in, in, in urban Toronto. You have um, Sven Robinson, who's making a comeback, who is a historic figure on the Canadian left, who championed gay rights. Um, before, you know, before it was on the radar of even the most progressive of Canadians. I mean, you have some real opportunities to bring back new and exciting voices, and I think that sometimes it does help. And one of the things we've talked about in politics to a certain degree is that, you know, we want more millennials, we want more young people involved. And sometimes that does require older folks taking a bit of a step back. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's an opportunity to see that here. So... Uh uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, the lack of the NDP uh, being able to fundraise right now? So they pulled in 1.97 million in the fourth quarter of 2018, which is a uh, the the poorest haul since uh, 2011. Uh, is is that a a worry, or does the what does the NDP need to really do to be able to to fundraise uh, successfully? Well, one of the challenges I think in uh, last year at least. Um, you know, a big fundraising engine for the NDP in, 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 in federally is Ontario, and the Ontario NDP did rather rather fantastically in fundraising. They sort of, I think they pulled a lot of uh, Ontario NDP money and that didn't leave the federal with as much. I mean, in, in Q4 2018, the NDP actually beat the uh, Doug Ford and you know Doug Ford's Conservatives and the Liberal Party almost combined. Mm. Um, so the Ontario NDP did very very well. That does sort of mean in some ways that um, there's less money for the federal party. It's a bit of a seesaw. Mm -hmm. But, you know, certainly it is a concern. Certainly it is a concern that fundraising is quite difficult. But the reality is is that the party has been in much dire straits before. Um, and in some ways, in our, in our own time, you know, money's still important, but you also have the ability to, to generate interest in other ways. And I do think that Singh, now that he has a seat, now that you'll be able to put a face to it, and now that I think that this is the kind of major election for, for NDPers in, say, both B.C. and in Ontario, uh, that the, the finance focus will shift to the federal. I know, like, 
in Kingston, we've seen um, a lot more donations shift from provincial, which was the 2018 focus where we mm-hmm. were able to pick up the seat. And now they're shifting more towards federal. Okay, I want to move to uh, uh, SNC-Lavalin now. So uh, in, uh, in Jagmeet Singh's speech uh, after his win, he did mention SNC-Lavalin. I'm going to play that clip here. We have eight more months to let the people know that they can choose a government that stands up for people, not for corporations, that doesn't give handouts to SNC-Lavalin, but stands up for everyday Canadians. So as you mentioned earlier, uh, clearly Jagmeet Singh is uh, now uh, discussing uh, this issue and, and sort of using it uh, as a way to, to, to discuss how the Liberal government is uh, answering to corporations and, and not the people. Um, what are your thoughts on on how Jagmeet Singh can use this issue? And also, just go into um, your thoughts on on uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony as a whole. Yeah, first on Jagmeet, I think it's key here. I think that the NDP has often done well. I mean, David Lewis, he was the leader of the party. David Lewis's father. He was the leader of the party in the early 1970s. And he did very well in 1972, won one of the more uh, successful NDP elections up until that point on the idea of the corporate welfare bonds. That at the time, the rising rhetoric from liberals and conservatives was that we have this, we have this class of people who are, who are leeching off welfare and are you know, uh, be, you know, taking away the initiative in society. And Lewis would say, well, look, if you compare you know, corporate welfare to you know, the sort of social assistance we give to needy people, there's no comparison. The corporate welfare wins out. And so he went on a campaign exposing how you know, federal and provincial governments led by liberals and conservatives gave billions of dollars in 1970, even in that, you know, in those days, to corporations and how we needed to fight that. And I think, you know, while the SNC-Lavalin case, at least in this case, is, la- is not really about, um, you know, subsidies, although there have been subsidies to that company, it really is about putting your finger on the scale. Mm-hmm. Singh, I think, can generate a lot of support on that issue, and the NDP has credibility there because it is kind of by default, for better or worse, seen as the anti-corporate party. And I mean, this ties in really well as, uh, with for Singh because I think Wilson Raybould's testimony was really quite powerful. You know, she made it very clear that it wasn't just about protecting jobs, but it was also about, you know, trying to protect the Liberal Party brand in Quebec. And I think that Singh has an opportunity here to show the hypocrisy of the Liberals because, as we know, um, Oshawa's DM factory is going away. Uh, we mm-hmm. saw Sears across the country not only close but have the pension funds pilfered so that CEOs could get bonuses. And we saw pensioners at Stelco and Hamilton, again, have their benefits and pensions clawed back so that the company could be more profitable going forward, basically having the deal broken under them. And in all of those cases, Trudeau has done nothing. He yeah. hasn't protected pensioners. He hasn't protected workers. He hasn't protected uh, dying industries or suffering industries. He's done nothing to alleviate that. And yet here... Supposedly, the Liberals care about 9,000 jobs. It doesn't cast the smell test. I mean, you've heard the story, maybe. There was Hamilton area MPP or MP Bob Burkina, when asked about why the Liberals haven't protected pensioners, said, and I, I won't use the, the language on the radio, but he said, F the steel workers mm-hmm. and F pensioners, F Stelco pensioners. And I think that's kind of what the Liberal Party thinks about working people. Yeah. SNC Lavalin is about the corporation and not about the 9,000 jobs. And I think saying if he can draw that line, can both generate a lot of support in English Canada and perhaps mitigate some of the potential effects that might happen in Quebec, because there is a narrative in Quebec that perhaps Trudeau's decision to to basically be corrupt, frankly, uh, is popular there. Although I've seen some conflicting reports on that, that that it's not as universal an opinion as Quebec as we're led to believe. Yeah, and and then we also, I mean, on the other side of that, we have 
we have Andrew Scheer and, and the Conservatives pretending that they are that they somehow have the upper hand on this issue. When I think all of us understand, if any Conservative MP was in the posi- uh, in the same position as Jody Wilson-Raybould was, they would have gone along with the deferred prosecution agreement. I mean, the, the, the Conservative Party is about corporate power, so the idea that any uh, Conservative Justice Minister or AG would have challenged that, uh, I think, is is ridiculous. No, no, certainly. And I think that's what Wilson Raybould, that's why it was so powerful. It was powerful for a whole bunch of reasons. It was powerful because she just performed extremely well. And it's powerful to see, you know, uh, indigenous women taking up such powerful positions in a society for so long they've been marginalized. So that, mm-hmm. that on its own is very powerful. But it, it's powerful because her testimony and, and her actions kind of showed the, the reality of what happens when the Liberal Party's image crashes up against its historical, uh, uh, historical narrative. And the reality is Wilson is, Wilson Rabel represents what the liberals want Canadians to see. It's a powerful woman being put into a meaningful position in this gender-balanced cabinet that Justin Trudeau has kind of been praised by, like, small-L liberals the world over for. Yep. And yet we see when she tries to execute that power meaningfully, she's largely stomped down by, by frankly, a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, older white men like Bill Morneau and Justin Trudeau and mm-hmm. Michael Wernick and Jerry Butts who have told her, look, we're going to get this deal done one way or another. He's in that kind of mood. You have to protect the Quebec MPs, and don't forget, Justin Trudeau himself is an MP from Papineau. So yep. all of these things, and so all of this is happening. This is the government of gender equity. This is the government of empowering people of color and indigenous people. And yet we see that's only the case when they continue to kind of keep the party status quo of protecting a company that's not only close to the Liberal Party and is not only donated to the Liberal Party, but is donated illegally to the Liberal Party. And so that's the reality. That's why it's so powerful to see her challenge, and I think. So uh, before we go, tell us about your uh, new YouTube channel where people can find your work. Yeah, no, I started a, a new YouTube channel. If you just type in Crystal Avalice into a YouTuber, uh, you can see it as a C-H-R-I-S-T-O and then A-I-V-A-L-I-S. It should come up. There's a name somewhat unique. Um, Basically, I talk about a lot of the same things we talk about on this show. We talk about politics, culture, uh, history, uh, but from a kind of left-wing perspective. It's very similar to, uh, to David's show in some ways, although mm-hmm. uh, it's not quite the same following yet. <laughs> not yet, but I think you'll get there. I- I've watched your videos. They're fantastic. Definitely check it out. Christo Avalis is a postdoctoral fellow in the history department at the University of Toronto with writing credits in Maclean's, The Globe and Mail, and The Washington Post. He also works closely with the NDP in Kingston. Christo, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, I dive further into the SNC-Lavalin scandal and what it tells us about who our government really works for. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. The David Dole Show continues on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics and culture right here on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. This week, Jody Wilson-Raybould gave explosive testimony on the internal pressure that she felt regarding the SNC-Lavalin case. I experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion in my role as the Attorney General of Canada in an inappropriate effort to secure a deferred prosecution agreement with SNC-Lavalin. So... She felt pressure from the Prime Minister's office and other internal groups to push for a deferred prosecution agreement in the SNC-Lavalin criminal case. Now, uh, a deferred prosecution agreement, or DPA for short, 
is essentially a, a slap on the wrist. Now, let me go through the breakdown, the, the timeline here on how this all happened. So I broke this down uh, partially uh, about a month ago. And look, I, I was saying the same thing then as I'm saying now, because it was obvious at the time what happened. And it's even more obvious now after this testimony. So let me break this down, uh, starting from February 2015, when SNC Lavalin is charged with fraud and corruption. Then a year later, February 2016, SNC Lavalin begins lobbying the new Trudeau government on the subject of quote unquote justice and law enforcement. Then March 2018, the Trudeau government tables a bill that introduces deferred prosecution agreements agreements which suspend criminal prosecutions of corporations if the corporation agrees to pay fines instead. For highly profitable companies like SNC-Lavalin, this is just a slap on the wrist for breaking the law. December 2018, after months of lobbying by the company and unhappy that Jody Wilson-Raybould refuses to budge, the, S the CEO of SNC-Lavalin complains about it to the papers. Then January of this year, Justice Minister and Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould, still refusing to push for a deferred prosecution agreement, is shuffled by the Prime Minister to Veterans Affairs. Now that same month, following the shuffle, the now former Justice Minister Wilson-Raybould releases a public letter discussing how important it is for our justice system to remain free from even the perception of political interference. And at the time, people were sort of wondering, why was she doing this? But it's obvious now why she was. Then last month, a story breaks claiming that Jody Wilson-Raybould was being pressured to take it easy on SNC-Lavalin. Then following that story, Trudeau then denies that he, quote-unquote, directed the justice minister to do anything, but won't deny that there was some influence on her. And this is all over a company that has illegally given more than $110,000 to the Liberal Party and its writing associations in the past, which is a separate legal matter from the fraud and corruption charges that this story is about. And of course, it's also worth uh, noting here that, that uh, SNC-Lavalin would lose their ability to uh, compete for government contracts if convicted of these, uh, these criminal charges. So even before Wilson-Raybould's testimony, one can make an educated guess that based on the timeline of events, she was clearly pressured to interfere in the case and let SNC-Lavalin off with the deferred prosecution agreement. So why does this story matter? Because I think people lose sight of it's I mean, you can get lost in the details. There is a there's a lot here to 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 go over, to think about. And, you know, the argument coming from the liberals is, oh, but I mean, we were doing it for the jobs. But if you heard my discussion earlier with Christo uh, Avalis, he discussed how actually the liberal government has not been strong on Canadian jobs in other areas. So was it really about the jobs or is it about the fact that this massive multinational corporation has been lobbying the liberal government for the past few years? So this is this shows us who our government works for. I mean, this is not this shouldn't be surprising, especially if you pay attention to politics around the world. This is how it works. Massive corporations have more of a say in policymaking than the general public do. And when you have lobbying and donations on this liberal government or any government, it leads to obvious direct pressure. And in this case, direct pressure on the justice minister to 
move away uh, from this case, from the criminal charges, and move towards a deferred prosecution agreement, which, again, is a slap on the wrist. Now, how about the media's role in all of this? So, allegedly, this is a, a piece of the story that is not getting as much play as it really should. Allegedly, Trudeau's chief of staff, aware of Wilson-Raybould's concerns, claimed that the prime minister's office could, quote, line up all kinds of people to write op-eds saying what she is doing is proper. Now, this is a window into how the political class try and shape the media in their favor. I mean, wouldn't, it wouldn't be surprising to see how think tanks... So this is what people don't get. This happens in, in all different areas. So it happens from politicians, but it also happens with think tanks and groups that have lots of money. So when you have a think tank like Fraser Institute, which you may have heard in passing in various media reports, Fraser Institute are constantly trying to manipulate public policy with their quote-unquote studies that always happen to favor the elite class of people that write their paychecks. This is how this lobbying works. This is how the media operates and how the media plays in all of this. Instead of exposing these corrupt connections and discussing how, how we don't have as much of a say, the people don't have as much of a say in the government as massive corporations and the wealthy do, the media instead are engaged in this corruption. They are engaged in furthering this. So as, as it's alleged here in this story, Trudeau's chief of staff yeah, they likely could have planted stories uh, in various papers, in op-eds, discussing how, oh, sure, uh, deferred prosecution agreement means that SNC-Lavalin is getting away with a slap on the wrist. But on the other hand, we are saving all these jobs, so it's actually a good thing. This is, I mean, you can picture the stories now. This is exactly how it would have happened because this is how it always happens. This is how our government operates and how the media is intertwined with this. This is, I mean, we see this again and again, whether it's the government, whether it's groups like the Fraser Institute, this is how the system works. Now, with Jody Wilson-Raybould, what does the future hold for her? So will she continue on as a member of the Liberal Party? Now, Trudeau said that he must uh, review her testimony before deciding if she can run again as a Liberal. The funny thing about this is that Jody Wilson-Raybould is the leader here. This is somebody that stood up against concentrated corporate power and political interference, stuck to her principles, stuck to her guns because she knew what the right thing to do was. If, you, if, if Justin Trudeau wants to save the Liberal Party, she would have her run for leadership and replace him because that is who should be leading the party. This is somebody that any other party should be dying to have in their party. And here we have Justin Trudeau almost, you know, casting her off as, oh, well, she may be able to run again. I'll have to think about it. This is somebody any party should want. And, I mean, in this case, I really think that there's a, a strong potential she will join the NDP. Because while almost the entirety of the Liberal Party appeared to have abandoned her, NDP MPs like Murray Rankin and Charlie Angus came to her defense. So with Jody Wilson-Raybould's, her, her strong principles, her morals, I think a home with the NDP or the Greens seems a lot more likely. And one last thing on this, I mentioned this in the last segment, but I got to mention it again. Andrew Scheer's Conservative Party. The idea that any conservative MP would have 
what, stood up against pressure from a corporation? Are you kidding me? The, the conservative party is all about corporate interest. This, if this had happened during a, a conservative government, we would never have heard about it because there would have been no issue. The justice minister, the conservative justice minister in that scenario would have pushed for a deferred prosecution agreement because as we've seen again and again and again, the conservative party answers to corporations directly. Now, with the Liberal Party, they sort of ride the line sometimes. I mean, if, if we're lucky, like in this case, we have Jody Wilson-Raybould actually stand up against corporate power. But with the Conservative Party, it's just completely run by corporate interests. So the idea that a Conservative or a Conservative government would have, would have stopped this, uh, this kind of behavior is absolutely ridiculous. Coming up next, Doug Ford holds a fundraiser for the rich. What does that tell us about who this PC government is fighting for? This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. You're listening to the David Dole Show, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010. Some of you may remember that the former Ontario Liberal government banned MPPs and other members of government from attending political fundraisers, better known as cash for access fundraising. The practice was banned following accusations that it skewed government in favor of the wealthy, which it most certainly did. But back in November, the Ford government raised or <laughs> yeah, sorry, raised the fundraising limit to $1600 and reopened the door to cash for access fundraising. Now at the time, I reported how Ford had been caught at a cash for access fundraiser a month before the election. So, it was no surprise to me that he made the process legal again. Well, this week he took further advantage of his newly reinstituted rule change holding a cash-for-access fundraiser for anybody willing to pay $12.50 a plate. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I've never had a dinner cost me that much. Uh, but of course, the wealthy people that attended this fundraiser didn't do it for the chicken parmesan. They did it for the access. People need to understand, much like how I discussed the, the Liberal government in the last segment, people need to understand how this Ontario government operates. If you think conservative MPPs surrounded by wealthy people giving them $1,250 a plate has no effect on their policymaking, you're being delusional. Money doesn't just buy access, it buys perspective. So Ford's bogus for the people slogan is all branding with no substance. What this $1,250 a plate fundraiser tells us is that Doug Ford is not for the people but he's instead for the rich. Now, how do I know? Well, apart from this fundraiser, let's just look at some of the things he's done. So Doug Ford's Bill 66 opens up the green belt to real estate developers. Now, who does that benefit? Well, wealthy real estate developers. How about Doug Ford's Bill 47 that took away two paid sick days and restricted the right to unionize and froze the minimum wage at $14 an hour for at least the next three years. Now, who does that benefit? Massive corporations like Tim Hortons that pay their workers starvation wages and restrict benefits. But wait, 
there's more. Yes, the Doug Ford government scrapped rent control protections, another move that clearly hurts renters. And who does that benefit? Landowners that can now jack up rents. Noticing a trend here? But to uh, top it all off, in a very underreported story, and this is one that I, I keep going back to because nobody is talking about this. The Doug Ford government canceled a planned surtax on the highest earners in Ontario, a move that cost the province $275 million a year. So while the Doug Ford government is complaining about the deficit, they gave the wealthiest people in Ontario a tax cut worth $275 million a year. Now, that fundraiser they had uh, netted them approximately $3.75 million. $3.75 million from a bunch of rich people. Now, this is, on one hand, fantastic news for <laughs> MPPs that now have all this money. They have raised more money than the other three parties combined times 10. And I believe that was actually before this fundraiser. So after this fundraiser, I'm not even sure what it's at now. They have raised a ton of money. And they were able to do it because Doug Ford changed the rules around fundraising. So if you think, like, if you're a, a Doug Ford voter, if you're a, a conservative voter, put your, yourself in the shoes of, say, a liberal voter. Or, or how about this? Imagine that instead of the conservative government doing this, it was, in fact, Kathleen Wynne and her liberal government doing this. Imagine that Kathleen Wynne all of a sudden raised the fundraising limit to a, a higher amount than it was before. And all of a sudden, she, she decided to reinstitute cash for access fundraisers. And also imagine that she went to a fundraiser with a bunch of wealthy people giving her $12.50 a plate. Now, would that bother you? Because it would bother me. I think it should be obvious to anyone watching this. This Doug Ford government is not for the people. They are for the rich people. When you raise this amount of money and you have these cash for access fundraisers attended by wealthy donors, understand what this is all about. This is how our corrupt politics operates. The 1250 a plate fundraiser for the rich was just an obvious example of who the Stuckford government listens to. But when you go through the work they've done, it's undeniable that this is not a government for the people. It's a government for the rich. Coming up next, Bernie 2020, how the 77-year-old independent senator is breaking records while the mass media continues to downplay his chances. This is the David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show on News Talk 1010. Welcome back to the David Dole Show, your rational look at news, politics, and culture right here on In-Depth Radio, News Talk 1010. Now, uh, compared to Canadian elections, which don't last any more than a few months, the American election for 2020 is already in full swing. And of course, the media at large is missing the biggest story right now, and that's Bernie Sanders. Turn on CNN, MSNBC, Bloomberg, and any other similar outlets, and you'll rarely hear Bernie's name mentioned. And when it is, they're downplaying his chances, just like they did in 2016. But here's the reality. Bernie Sanders is by far 
the front runner in this Democratic primary right now. On the first day, he shattered the previous fundraising record by quadrupling it. Now, that may not seem like a big deal if you're taking money from big donors, but Bernie Sanders only takes money from small individual donors and does not take any money at all from corporations or corporate PACs and won't even allow any super PACs. This is a man of the people. And in the first week, the Bernie 2020 campaign has raised $10 million in mostly small dollar donations, averaging $27 a piece. $27. Those donations came from 360,000 different donors, and 39% of those donors did not give him any money in 2016, meaning that his campaign has grown since then. It's one thing to have the same people that supported you last time. It's another to show actual real growth from 2016 to now. Now, on top of that, maybe the most impressive number is the fact that Bernie has already reached his goal of one million volunteers. And those volunteers are in every single district in the country. He already has the support base he needs for uh, a real grassroots, uh, not just fundraising, but to go around and knock on doors and tell people about this platform and what Bernie Sanders stands for. So these 1 million volunteers include over 320,000 volunteers not on the original campaign. Again, meaning that his campaign has grown. Now, you might wonder if, if you just get your news from, you know, mainstream press and you don't really understand why Bernie's so popular, well, do me a favor. When you get to a computer, simply Google Bernie Sanders 1980 and click on any of the videos that come up, and you're going to notice something. Bernie has been saying the same thing for 40 years. This is a rare politician that people know they can actually trust because he's been on these issues forever. He has not changed. And in fact, he's been on these issues before anybody else was, before they were popular. That is the mark of a leader. When you push an issue like, say, Medicare for All, long before anybody else does, long before anybody adopts it, and at the time, people calling you crazy for doing it, that shows you you are a leader. Doing something before anybody else is there and being correct on those issues, history showing that he's correct on those issues, shows us that he is a leader. And all you have to do is take a look at his platform. So I mentioned Medicare for All. There's also a free college, expanding Social Security, raising the minimum wage, breaking up Wall Street, saving unions, criminal justice reform, the Green New Deal, opposing the military-industrial complex, taking on big pharma price gouging, ending cash bail, legalizing weed. I mean, again, this is a politician for the people, a man that raises that has raised his campaign on small individual donations, averaging $27 a piece. This is why he has a massive volunteer base and massive support in the country, because he has shown a willingness to be a leader on the issues and a willingness to push away any special interest money, any corporate money, and simply be a voice for the people. And even on issues of race, you will not hear an honest recounting of Bernie's record in mass media. So in the 60s, when he was 19, he chained himself to a black woman to protest against housing segregation. This was the 60s. 
1984 and 88, as mayor of Burlington, Vermont, Bernie was one of the only white elected officials to endorse Jesse Jackson for president over the Democratic establishment-backed choices. And in the 90s, Bernie discussed the damage that Bill Clinton's crime bill would cause to the black community, which it ultimately did. And you won't hear any of this on CNN, unless you have Nina Turner on the panel, which is someone else I would like you to look up. She, uh, she is part of Bernie's campaign, and she is fantastic as well. So we are seeing now, I mean, as I'm speaking, I believe uh, Bernie is in Chicago at a massive rally. Just uh, turn on, go, to, uh, go online, check out Bernie's Facebook page. There is a massive rally going on. It is crazy. <laughs> His campaign has essentially continued what they did in 2016, and they've grown it. So yesterday he held a, a massive rally in, uh, in Brooklyn where there were 13,000 people that showed up. And this was a, a diverse group of people from all walks of life, all races, uh, every gender. It, it, no matter what you look at, th there is a supporter for Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders speaks to people. And this is why he has wide reach, because he speaks to issues that working people face, like low wages, like housing that's way too uh, unaffordable, or the cost of school. I mean, go down the list, healthcare. Again, this is something that, I mean, for us, it's so obvious. Yes, we should, clearly, everyone is, should be guaranteed healthcare. But for Americans who have been stuck in this broken system that have been owned by uh, private insurance industries and big pharma, it's, it's, <laughs> it's funny to me to turn on, you know, CNN or, or MSNBC or whatever, and see them talking about how, oh, Medicare for all, we can't possibly afford to do that. You can't possibly afford not to. The idea that there is a price on people's health care is absurd. So these are the issues that Bernie speaks to. And it reminds me that we really don't have our own Bernie Sanders in this country. I mean, there are some leaders out there. I will say that the person that I think comes closest is Elizabeth May, the leader of the Green Party. Uh, full disclosure, I ran as a Green Party MP in, uh, or candidate in uh, 2015. But Elizabeth May speaks to uh, sort of the, the genuine, or she has that, that genuine uh, feeling that, that Bernie has. But in many ways, I mean, we need somebody who is gonna be bold the way that Bernie is, and, and be able to build a movement of people around the country. You can follow me on Twitter at David Dole, last name spelled D-O-E-L, and visit me on YouTube at therationalnational.com. Thanks for listening to The David Dole Show on In-Depth Radio News Talk 1010.